for today's reading, um, the first passage comes from Psalm 133. How good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. It is like precious oil poured on the head, running down on the beard, running down on Aaron's beard, down on the collar of his robe. It is as if the dew of Hermon were falling on Mount Zion, for there the Lord bestows his blessing, even life forevermore. The second passage comes from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 13 to 22. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who are far away and peace to those who are near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as a chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God endures forever. Well, it's me again. Uh, summer's a, a unique time in the rhythm of our church. Um, a lot of ministries are on break and on hiatus, and, and uh, a lot of uh, staff members also uh, take some time off in the summer, too. That's why Pastor Aaron is, is taking a little bit of a break as well. Uh, just to kind of give you a heads up on what the plan is for the summer, the rough plan is uh, we still plan on bringing more guest speakers in to come and speak because I think it's, it's great for us to hear from other voices. Uh, but for the exilic pastors who will be preaching, we're going to do a loose sermon series on the book of Psalms. And I think that's something that we can do kind of every summer is go back to the Psalms. So uh, today's uh, last week, Pastor David kicked us off with Psalm 1, and today we're going to take a look at Psalm 133. Okay, so that's kind of the plan coming up. Um, in 1971, so before a lot of us were born, John Lennon, the lead singer of the Beatles, he released what would become his most popular solo single, the song Imagine. Now, even if you're not a fan of the Beatles, and I, I know there are a lot of Gen Zers and millennials here, um, You've heard this song. It, it's actually one of the most covered songs of all time. If you watch the opening ceremony of the Olympics in Beijing this past winter, uh, it was one of the theme songs for the opening ceremony. During the pandemic, a bunch of Hollywood celebrities got together and they released a compilation covering this song. And uh, while some found it inspiring, it made a lot of others cringe. <coughs> But I want us to take a look at these words and take a look at why it's so popular. And don't worry, I'm not going to sing it for us. Imagine there's no heaven, it's easy if you try. No hell below us, above us, only sky. 
Imagine all the people living for today. Imagine there's no countries, it isn't hard to do, nothing to kill or die for, and no religion too. Imagine all the people living life in peace. You may say that I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one, and I hope someday you will join us and the world will be as one. Imagine no possessions, I wonder if you can, no need for greed or hunger, a brotherhood of man. Imagine all the people sharing all the world. You may say I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. I hope someday you'll join us and the world will be as one. In this song, John Lennon imagines and he asks his hearers to imagine a world of unity. Where we're all one people, one nation, one world, no conflict, no violence, no greed or poverty. And this song was really controversial when it was released because its prescriptions for how to get unity uh, pretty much straight out of the Communist Manifesto. No religion, no possessions, no greed, just brotherhood. And ironically, communism in practice, it accomplished none of these ideals. But this song still resonated with so many people of all political persuasions because it's clear we all live in a broken world, a world without unity. We witness in the news daily stories of murder, stories of abuse, war, acts of terrorism. And it's not just in the news, it's in our homes. We live in homes that lack unity, broken marriages, domestic violence, parental abuse. We see disunity in schools, we see it in the workplace, we see friends betraying one another, we see people fighting amongst each other. Our society is probably more politically divided than ever before in recent history. There's this general pervasive cynicism towards institutions and and toward opposing tribes. And it isn't just political or social. It's also evident in the church. These past two years, churches have split over mask policies. Churches have split over stances on racism, abortion, Christian nationalism, and that's on top of the everyday struggles, the power struggles, the complaints, the gossip that have throughout church history turned Christians against one another. Unity is absent in our lives, but it's something we all long for. It's an ideal that we cherish, that we strive to achieve. This past week, we celebrated July 4th, On our currency is printed the Latin phrase, e pluribus unum, out of many, one. And our country was built on the idea of a union of states joining together to form one nation. We want this. We want unity. We dream of perfect marriages, completely absent of fighting and cheating and divorce, Uh, About eight months ago, I officiated a a wedding, a couple of our church, I won't mention who they are, Um, but when I was doing premarital counseling with them, they said to me, Pastor Gene, I know you keep talking about marriage being hard, but I think we're going to be really good at it. And I said, absolutely, you guys are going to be great, Um, you're going to be awesome, 
And then uh, I had them over for dinner last night, and they said, Pastor Gene, remember when we said that in premarital counseling? Yeah, not so much. But we dream of it. We want it. We want so badly there to be unity in the church where everybody loves God, everybody loves one another. Unity is something we dream of, but something we do not see often. And this is what Psalm 133 is all about. It was written by King David, who was the second king of Israel, and he has seen his share of disunity. His people, the Israelites, they're just constantly threatened by neighboring countries, the Philistines. He was hunted by King Saul. When he finally united the kingdom and he brought peace, he took power in his own family. There was some serious dysfunction. His children... They rape and murder each other. His son Absalom revolts against him, and David has to flee from his own son. So King David, like John Lennon, he writes a song praising unity. And it almost sounds like the song, imagine. It sounds like wishful thinking. It sounds just as naive as John Lennon's song. He's wondering to himself, what, what, what would true unity look like? And he sings about it. Let's look at the words, verses 1 and 2. How good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. It's like precious oil poured on the head, running down on the beard, running down on Aaron's beard, down on the collar of his robe. David, he compares unity to precious oil on the head, running down the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down the collar of his robes. What does this mean? Well, we don't really have an equivalent example today, but back then when prophets, priests, or kings were inaugurated, they were anointed with oil. Today, when presidents are elected, there's this fancy formal inauguration When kings and queens assume the throne, there are elaborate coronations. But in David's time, priests were consecrated. They were anointed with oil. And that might not mean much to us. It might not sound too pleasing to us, but it was. Because what this image evokes, it it arouses our sense of smell. Sense of smell. In our world today... Artificial fragrances are everywhere. Did you know that the perfume industry alone is currently worth about $30.6 billion? In the next five years, it's expected to increase to $43.2 billion. That's just perfumes. We use air fresheners at home and in the car. Hand lotions, shampoos, soaps all have their distinctive fragrances. They smell great. But as you can imagine, that wasn't the case back then. Remember that even much later in Jesus' time, when Jesus is born, these powerful magi, they come to visit Jesus, and what's one of the gifts they bring? Incense. Remember that sinful woman in the book of Luke who takes a bottle of perfume, breaks it open, pours it out on Jesus' feet, and it turns out that little bottle is worth a year's wages. 
And fragrances were even rarer in David's time. And this wasn't just any oil. It was oil that was used to anoint Aaron, the very first high priest of Israel. It was the very best, the most fragrant oil that there was. Take a look at Exodus 30. I just want to talk a little bit about this oil. Verse 22, then the Lord said to Moses, take the following fine spices, 500 shekels of liquid myrrh, half as much, that is 250 shekels of fragrant cinnamon, 250 shekels of fragrant calamus, 500 shekels of cassia, all according to the sanctuary shekel, and a hin of olive oil. Make these into a sacred anointing oil, a fragrant blend, uh, the work of a perfumer, it will be the sacred anointing oil. What we see here, there's, there's literally the, the, the ingredients for this oil in Exodus 30. We see that these are extremely rare and expensive materials that go into this oil. Myrrh, it came from the sap of a tree found in Arabia and Ethiopia. Cinnamon came from the bark of a tree grown in Malaysia. And they're also to be mixed and compounded by an expert perfumer. But there's more. Verse 30. Anoint Aaron and his sons and consecrate them so they may serve me as priests. Say to the Israelites, this is to be my sacred anointing oil for the generations to come. Do not pour it on anyone else's body. Do not make any other oil using the same formula. It is sacred and you are to consider it sacred. Whoever makes perfume likes it or puts it on anyone other than a priest must be cut off from their people. This oil... It was exclusive to Aaron and his sons. This formula, it was never to be duplicated again. And God is so serious about this that if anyone were to make like an imitation of this or, or try to duplicate it, or if someone took it and put it on an unauthorized person, that person would be put to death. This is serious stuff. And what this means is that David, he can only imagine what this must smell like. Just like he can only imagine what true unity must look like. But he's imagining, he's imagining what this scent must be. The sweetest scent he can think of. And not just a little of it. So much of it that it, it, it flows, it runs down Aaron's beard it runs down his robe. Think about shampoo when you're taking a shower. And the shampoo, you lather your hair and it kind of runs down your whole body. And the smell of the shampoo, it just fills the shower. It fills the entire bathroom. And this is what David is comparing unity to. The sweetest scent he can think of. He almost smells it as he thinks about unity. And he goes on in the psalm to compare unity to the dew of Hermon. Look at verse 3. It is as if the dew of Hermon were falling on Mount Zion. For there the Lord bestows his blessing, even life forevermore. Now, again, this might be an image that we're not familiar with. A little tidbit about streams and rivers. The water is always purest at its source. 
and mountain springs in particular, they bring to mind pure, fresh water. That's why every water bottle you buy, it has a picture of a mountain on it. That's why Pepsi named one of its most popular drinks Mountain Dew. David is talking about Mountain Dew here. But it's not just any dew. It's the dew from Hermon. Hermon was a place known to always be flowing with water. No matter how bad drought conditions were, there was always precipitation up at the peak of Mount Hermon. And guess what? That water was ice cold. David thinks of this mountain dew when he sings of unity. This is a very powerful image. There's nothing more refreshing to a thirsty person than an ice cold glass of pure spring water. I remember when I was in college, I I led a mission team to Oaxaca, Mexico, and uh, it was rough. We were were like out in the jungle. We were in this like remote mountain village for a month. Uh, It was super hot. It was like high 90s, high humidity all summer long. Um, and for water, there, there wasn't a lot of electricity, no refrigeration, so, and the water had to be boiled before we could drink it to kind of get rid of the impurities. And the water always had this funky taste, this, this weird aftertaste, and it was always like warm to hot, right? And that's what we drank all month long. Uh, after about a month, we, uh, we went to the city, and I remember somebody handed me a glass of ice water. And I think to this day, it's the best drink I've ever had. (laughs) Better than any aged single malt whiskey, this water just going down my throat, uh, I I think I almost cried drinking it. (laughs) But that's how sweet unity is. This is how much David longs for it. And again, this is something that David can only imagine. He says, imagine the dew of Hermon were falling right here on Mount Zion. Remember, Mount Zion is the mountain on which Jerusalem was built. He's gazing toward Mount Mount Hermon, and, and he's wishing that its water was here in his home. And I think what these images tell us is that unity is not just one dimensional. The image of oil, it's not just a happy kumbaya feeling. David gives us an image that we can smell. With the dew of Hermon, he gives us an image that we can taste. All of the senses are involved. And I think unity in the same way, it goes out and it impacts and affects everything. Unity, when there's true unity, there's a fragrance to it. It goes out. It makes people just smile. It's like a refreshing glass of water to a thirsty person. But by contrast, disunity would, would conceivably be the opposite, where it's not a fragrance, it is a stench. You ever smell something really bad? It feels like you got slapped in the face, doesn't it? That's what disunity is like. It's like giving bleach to a thirsty person. 
When they drink it, it burns the throat more. And it kills them. This is what disunity is like. But it, it, its effects are far, far-reaching. It's not just something we hear. It's not just something we see. It's not just something we feel. It's something that we can smell and taste. It affects the whole person. It affects the whole church. It affects the whole world. David longs for this unity. He sings about this unity. He can imagine this unity, but where can he find this unity? Where can we find this unity? David points us to Mount Zion, and he says that there the Lord has commanded blessing, life forevermore. Unity, even beyond that, blessing, eternal life, are found at Mount Zion. Well, what does that mean for us then? Is there a specific mountain that we have to climb in order to find unity? Right? We climb the mountain and the Shaolin monk comes and gives us a secret to unity. Is, is that what David's talking about? I don't think so. It's, it's strange because David is at Mount Zion when he's writing this psalm. And he's saying the Lord's blessing and eternal life can be found at Mount Zion. But clearly, it's not there yet. And I think what this is showing is that something will happen in Jerusalem that will bring God's blessing and eternal life. It's not there yet. It's coming. Something is coming that's going to bring that unity Bring that blessing. Bring that eternal life. What could that be? We see the answer in the New Testament. The writer of Hebrews, he speaks of Mount Zion. And he writes this. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, And to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Aha! We have come to Mount Zion, to Jesus Christ, the mediator of a new covenant. At Mount Zion, through Jesus Christ, we are given unity, blessing, eternal life. We're brought into the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, the party of the ages. True unity is found only through the person and the work of Jesus. The writer of Hebrews says that the sprinkled blood of Jesus speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. That's kind of a strange thing to say. What's he talking about? Well, remember back in Genesis, in Genesis 4, Abel is murdered by his brother Cain, and his blood cries out for vengeance. But the writer of Hebrews says, the blood of Jesus is better. It speaks a better word than the blood of Abel, because Jesus, even though he was brutally murdered by his brothers... His blood cries out not for vengeance, but for mercy 
and reconciliation. The blood of Jesus, it speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. The last passage I want us to look at is Ephesians 2. And here we see Psalm 133 fulfilled. David sings of unity. He dreams of unity. But he doesn't have unity. It's out Mount Zion. It's in Jesus Christ. <coughs> Notice how Paul begins this uh, in verse 13. But now, but now, something's changed. Something has come. Someone has come. In Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments and ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Paul, like David, he recognizes that everywhere he looks, there's division. Everywhere he looks, there's disunity. He realizes that there's, this is a problem. He sees all of that. And one place where it was clear was in the temple itself. The temple was built to accommodate division. Take a look here. Uh, there's a, a diagram of the temple. And if you see that there's a wall that kind of goes around the inner court, and outside of that is the court of Gentiles. Now, anybody could come to the court of Gentiles, but the only people who could go into the temple were Jews. Right? So the Jews would enter in, and they would go to the court of women. But if you want to go deeper into the temple, the next court was the court of Israel, and women couldn't come in. So the only people who go move on into the temple were Jewish men. So the Jewish men would enter into the court of Israel, and beyond that was the court of priests. And now only male Levites, priests, could enter into the court of priests, male Levites. And then beyond that is the holy place, only priests could enter, and then into that, the very inner sanctum, is the holy of holies. So you see, the whole temple structure was all about exclusion, division, disunity. In fact, when Paul is writing Ephesians, he's in prison. And the reason he's in prison is because he was accused by a mob of trying to bring a Gentile past the court of Gentiles into the temple. And that's why he was arrested and sent to Rome. It's clear to Paul that there is division everywhere. But he is able to say, Jesus himself is our peace, who has made the two, Jew and Gentile, one. He's destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. And I think what he's getting at in that passage is this. The greatest barrier in the temple was not the walls that separated the outer and the inner courts. The greatest barrier was inside the temple itself, 
between the holy place and the holy of holies. In the holy place, priests could enter it, but the holy of holies, only the high priest once a year could enter into the holy of holies. And the holy of holies was where God himself dwelt. And there was this thick curtain about six inches long that that divided the holy of holies from the holy place. So the temple structure, it, it, it highlights differences, Gentile versus Jew, man versus woman. But it also shows the greatest separation of all, the separation of all God's people and God. That's the greatest separation. And the reason for this separation is sin. And Jesus, Paul says, on the cross at Mount Zion, he dies. And at the moment of his death, what happens? The curtain is torn in two from top to bottom. And this is why Paul can say that Jesus died to reconcile both Gentile and Jew to God through the cross. Through him, we both have access to the Father by the Spirit. And this is the basis for unity. Because the greatest barrier has been torn down, There's no need for lesser barriers. The greatest barrier between God and man is gone. There is now peace between God and man. Therefore, there can be unity now between men. They have all fallen. All barriers have fallen with that gray curtain. And this is the basis for our unity. Now, there are so many ways that I can apply this, right? I can apply this to to so many different areas in life. I'm just going to do one here. Uh, This is a very unique time for our church. You know, New York City is such a transient city to begin with. You already have a very high turnover rate. Uh, We're we're always having to say bye to people we love and, and, and greet new people who come into the church. But add to that kind of the effects of the global pandemic, especially in Manhattan. So many people have left New York City at once. And now kind of we're seeing the rent skyrocket again because people are kind of pouring back into New York City. So in in many ways, it kind of feels like we're in this constant shuffle, but even more so we're put through the blender in our community. Um... If, if in many ways, it, it sometimes feels like we're starting all over again. Uh, I've heard from many members who have been members for a long time, and, and I've heard this sentiment a lot. It just doesn't feel the same anymore. The church is growing, and it doesn't feel like the church I, 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 I fell in love with. And a lot of uh, new members, we're also hearing from them, and, and they're saying, you know what, it's been really hard to get connected It's been really hard to engage. It's been hard to find real community. So I think everyone is kind of struggling with this and trying to figure out how to make this work. And I think even for me and the staff, we feel this too. More and more, we feel like every single Sunday, we don't know half the names and the faces of the people here. So I think the question for us as a church is this, how is a church like ours, in a city like New York, in a time like now, 
going to stay united. Well, I think we have to understand this, that true biblical unity, it doesn't mean we all get along. It doesn't mean we all have fun and everyone wants to come and hang out with each other. Unity doesn't even happen when we're really good friends with one another. True biblical unity, it happens when we have in common the same great Savior. Unity happens when we all look to and follow the same Christ and we understand that we're united to Him and therefore we're united to one another. There's that famous analogy. If you want to tune a hundred pianos, you don't do them to one another. You do it to one pitchfork. That, that is how we are in tune. And that is what true unity looks like. When we are all united to Christ, in that way, what connects all of us will be bigger, stronger than what could possibly divide us. So I think our commitment during this time, we're going to do everything we can to help people stay connected. We're going to have different events. Uh, we're going to find ways and maybe even change up our, our CG structure to find ways to keep us all connected. But ultimately, our commitment is going to be this. We want to do everything we can to make Jesus bigger, to make Jesus more beautiful, more central, to everything that we do, because the more we're united to Christ, we are simultaneously, organically united to one another. And it's when we realize this, that we can have access to the beautiful unity that David can only imagine. And our hope is this, that that unity will not just uh, take place and exist within exilic, but that our mission will be to take that unity out into this world on mission. That we can go with the unity we have into the disunity. That when people look at our unity, they will smell a fragrance. When people look at our unity, they will taste the refreshing cool waters that only true unity can bring and that this thirsty world needs. So will you keep coming? That is our hope. Will you keep pursuing Jesus and thereby be united to one another? That is our hope and prayer. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this good news, that in Jesus Christ, the unity that David could only hope for is here. And in Christ, Psalm 133 is fulfilled. I pray that we would taste that unity, that we would smell that unity, and that we would spread that unity. Unite us, O oh God, to you and, and also to one another. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.